Welcome to Budget Watchdog, All Federal, the podcast dedicated to making sense of the budget, spending, and tax issues facing the nation. Cut through the partisan rhetoric and talking points for the facts about what's being talked about, bandied about, and pushed to Washington. Brought to you by Taxpayers for Common Sense. And now, the host of Budget Watchdog AF, TCS President Steve Ellis. Welcome to all American taxpayers seeking common sense. You've made it to the right place. For over 25 years, TCS, that's Taxpayers for Common Sense, has served as an independent, nonpartisan budget watchdog group based in Washington, D.C. We believe in fiscal policy for America that is based on facts. We believe in transparency and accountability because no matter where you are on the political spectrum, no one wants to see their tax dollars wasted. And that is why we are always following the money here at TCS. And that means watchdogging more than just the tax dollars that the government spends. It also means scrutinizing the money others are spending to get a better deal for themselves at taxpayers' expense. And boy, do we have a doozy for you today. It's a story 100 years in the making. It's about greed, naked political power, and the exploitation of American taxpayers. We've assembled an expert panel to guide you through this rip-from-the-headline storytelling exercise. So let me bring them right in. TCS Vice President Autumn Hanna, welcome back to Budget Watchdog AF. I was here on episode one, and I wouldn't miss this for anything, Steve. Also with us today, Senior Policy Analyst at Taxpayers for Common Sense, Sheila Karp. Great to be here again, Steve. And making her debut appearance on Budget Watchdog AF, Mia Huang, TCS Research and Data Analyst. Welcome, Mia. Thank you, Steve. Dear podcast listeners, if this was a James Patterson book, the back cover would read like this. For more than a century, the federal government has been subsidizing the oil and gas industry through the tax code and the leasing system on federal lands. Over that time, billions of taxpayer dollars have gone to support one of the world's oldest and most profitable industries. And to preserve their massive subsidies and push for new ones, oil and gas companies and industry associations have amassed an army of lobbyists and a war chest of tens of millions of dollars to influence policymakers every single year. And guess what? It works. It works incredibly well. Over the last decade, the oil and gas industry has spent $1.9 billion on lobbying. And they got back $93 billion in the form of federal subsidies, tax breaks, and sweetheart leasing deals. All right, podcast listeners, they say in Vegas that the House never loses. Well, in this case, the feds are the House, and they are losing our money at a furious rate. Autumn, take us back to the beginning. So the beginning takes us back to the turn of the century, the 20th century, when the income tax system was first created. The oil and gas industry was there on day one, when the intangible drilling cost deduction was established in 1916. It was followed by the percentage depletion allowance 10 years later, and the list goes on from there. For folks that are interested in learning how this works more, we dig into all this in a 2014 report aptly named Understanding Oil and Gas Subsidies. Okay, so that is interesting. And if you think about it, this wasn't some sort of struggling industry at that time. I mean, we'd already had the breakup of Standard Oil. This is a huge industry at that point. But 
don't all industry sectors get a lot of subsidies on them? Yes, that's definitely true. But the size and length of time that these subsidies have been around is what is most mind-blowing. Many, including us, would say there's a role for discrete time-limited investments in research and development in the energy industry, where there is a public interest. Many oil and gas producers are allowed to deduct more than the amount they have invested in an asset. It is this preferential treatment that has cost taxpayers billions of dollars year after year. And don't get me started on the losses we incur from our broken oil and gas leasing system. That's an area we've devoted more than one podcast to already. So let's just say the feds do have a losing hand. It is pretty ridiculous to think that they can actually deduct more than the amount that they've invested in an asset. And this seems so blatantly egregious. Why hasn't anything been done to change the system, Autumn? Well, not surprisingly, it comes down to political muscle and influence. We do call them big oil after all. But it's still a good question. And it's one that we've asked ourselves for years. We try to understand the where and how the oil industry keeps getting these century-old subsidies and how they're so well positioned to get more new forms of assistance, as we saw during COVID. And we documented that, too, in a report we released last December. And now we've put together a political footprint, something we've done before, but it was more interesting now to do in the wake of COVID. As Steve already mentioned, we have our new guest, Mia Huang, joining us. She spent a lot of time digging into the weeds of the oil and gas industry over the last several months and answering that question, really helping us understand how the oil and gas industry has maintained this dominance. And we're so glad to have you join us today, Mia. It's hard to believe some of the things in our latest report. It is really interesting. Well, disturbing information you discovered combing through the oil and gas industry's political spending and lobbying disclosures. So can you tell us a little bit about what you found, Mia? So we collected data from the Center for Responsive Politics and found the oil and gas industry spent $112.5 million on lobbying last year. That is over $300,000 per day. On top of its lobbying expenditure, the industry spent a record high $138.6 million on campaign contributions during the 2020 election cycle, an increase of 22.7% over the previous election cycle. It is clear that the bench shock brought on by the pandemic in 2020 may have caused the oil and gas industry to cut jobs, but it certainly did not make the industry cut back on campaign contributions to politicians. So Budget Watchdog AF listeners, Open Secrets, which is run by our friends at the Center for Responsive Politics that Mia mentioned, is a great resource for lobbying campaign finance data. Okay, enough with that plug. Tell us more, Mia. Campaign spending by the oil and gas industry ballooned following the Supreme Court's ruling in Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission in 2010. In fact, the industry's campaign donations have grown from one presidential election cycle to the next at an average rate of more than 25%, and that's even after adjusting for inflation. On top of these impressive numbers, oil and gas companies spent hundreds of millions of dollars buying well-connected advocates. Around 68% of lobbyists working for the oil and gas industry last year are revolving door personnel, people who formerly worked for government regulators, in Congress as elected members, or as congressional staffs. These revolving door lobbyists often have the year 
or at least the email addresses of former colleagues and are able to put the industry interest right in front of policymakers. This is just outrageous, Mia. The research you found is just so intriguing. And one of the things that I know you also dug into that I think makes this so egregious is how well these companies are doing and really looking at their earnings report, though, how unjustified these continued handouts are. Is that something you could share a little bit about as well? Sure thing. We all know that 2020 was a hard year for everyone. But with the economy opening up, we thought it would be a good time to examine how the oil and gas industry is doing these days. After digging through oil and gas companies' earnings reports, we found that the top 20 U.S. oil and gas companies, ranked by market cap, reported combined profits of $24 billion for the first two quarters in 2021. This is $1 billion more than what they earned during the same period in 2019 before the pandemic started. So you're saying that they actually did better than they did in the first quarter of 2019 when it was before the pandemic? That is correct. Wow. And I will say soaring oil and gas prices are the main contributor to this recovery for sure. The average oil price in the second quarter of 2021 was 137% above the average oil price in the same period of 2020. All of these top 20 companies doubled their revenues in this quarter compared to the same period last year. Although some reported losses due to incorrectly betting on oil prices through the use of derivatives, overall, the oil and gas industry has made a strong recovery from the demand hit caused by the pandemic. It is a highly mature and profitable business and should be able to stand on their own feet. It is really time to stop the industry from pocketing more than $4.8 billion in federal subsidies per year paid for by taxpayers. Derivatives. So this is basically the companies were betting on oil not going up. And so then that's the reason why they ended up having these losses. And so it was really kind of their own gambling and their own hedging that actually ended up costing them. It wasn't something in the market reality, correct? You put that perfectly, Steve. I think people are still talking about an industry that is in shambles and needs our help. And that's one thing that the oil industry has been really good at, keeping that message alive and out there and talking about how they need assistance. And this research here that you've done and looking at these earnings report really just demonstrates how effective they are at maintaining these subsidies with this well-oiled lobbying machine. It's really eye-opening and... um... I have to say that uh, well-oiled machine, um, I don't know if you intended that or not, um, but they definitely are. And they're very adept at crying poor while being pretty rich. And it's kind of funny, Mia, you know, as you were saying, you know, that, that they can they can stand on their own two feet. Well, I mean, they've been getting these subsidies for more than 100 years. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, we can take away the crutch uh, or something along those lines. But I wanted to bring in our other guest here, Sheila, because you've done your own analysis. And it's not just the oil and gas industry that has special interest influence in Washington, D.C. There's also the biofuels industry that has an army of lobbyists and spends millions of dollars on political campaign contributions annually as well. So, Sheila Carf, please tell us a bit about the four decades of influence from the ethanol industry. Well, Steve, corn ethanol subsidies actually started way back in 1978, and they still live on to fight another day. The ethanol industry has used its muscle, just like the oil and gas industry, to influence members of Congress, primarily from the Midwest, for decades. And this intense lobbying has led to a maze of tax breaks, loan guarantees, a federal biofuels mandate, and numerous other subsidies over time. Well, we got to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of the end of the $6 billion per year ethanol tax credit earlier this summer. The 
biofuels industry is still reaping taxpayer subsidies today. Since 2016, we calculated that the biodiesel and ethanol industry spent over $272 million on campaign contributions and federal lobbying. In return, the industry received $12 billion in subsidies, and that's just for the $1 per gallon biodiesel tax credit, not even mentioning any other federal supports. Well, it's not lost on me that the industry really benefits from first in the nation Iowa caucuses and that every presidential candidate kind of traipses through corn country every year. I'm reminded that the late Senator John McCain, when he was running for president in 2008, trying to kind of slough off his criticism that he was getting from being opposed to ethanol subsidies, would start each of his speeches there saying, I drink a glass of ethanol with breakfast every morning. Certainly, they have a prominence that is disproportionate to their size. But so who are are some of the companies that are receiving these subsidies, Sheila? Many of the companies receiving these federal subsidies, especially from the Department of Agriculture, USDA, include big agribusinesses like Cargill, Louis-Dreyfus, and Archer's Daniel Midland, or ADM. And podcast listeners, with my colleague Joshua Sewell not on the podcast today, I just couldn't resist a shout out to USDA on his behalf. So speaking of USDA, the department started subsidizing biofuels infrastructure projects 10 years ago. And this was at the behest of the ethanol lobby. And worse yet, it happened behind Congress's back. The oil and gas industry actually benefits from some of these subsidies, believe it or not. In the last couple of years, companies like Shell, BP, and Kinder Morgan got taxpayer subsidies for new ethanol and biodiesel fuel pumps, storage tanks, and other infrastructure. When you said that they did this behind Congress's back, didn't they actually do this even in contravention to what the Congress had said? They'd said not to do it. So it wasn't even like they were sneaking around Congress. They were actually going against the will of the Congress. And this was in both administrations. Am I right? Absolutely, Steve. You're right. Great memory. It goes back to 2011 when the U.S. Department of Agriculture started to subsidize ethanol blender pumps and other biofuels infrastructure without Congress's authorization. They pulled money from another program that was supposed to fund renewable energy. Then in the 2014 Farm Bill, Congress said, nope, you need to stop that. You shouldn't subsidize this industry any longer. And what did USDA do within a year? They had more subsidies coming out the door from a different program with a different acronym, pulling money out of thin air. Then they did it again, even during the Trump administration last year. And we're continuing to see this money go out the door today. Yeah. And I think we did even a a golden fleece for that blinders for blender pumps. And that was Secretary Vilsack, well, then Secretary of Agriculture Vilsack, now back for a return engagement here in the uh, Biden administration. And speaking of that, thanks for the uh, USDA shout out, Sheila. And I'm sure Josh appreciates, you know, that he's still present, even if he's not speaking on this podcast. The seeds were planted way back then. So, did I hear correctly, though, that now that Congress is planning on expanding the subsidies for these biofuel infrastructure projects? Yes, Steve, that's right. And it's kind of unbelievable that this has gone on for so long. And even with the shift to electric vehicles, we're still subsidizing this mature industry. But uh, this subsidy spigot surely continues. The FY22 fiscal year 22 budget reconciliation package that's being considered right now would add a record $1 billion for biofuels infrastructure subsidies And this is thanks a lot to lobbying and influence from the ethanol industry in particular. Taxpayers have already wasted over $200 million on similar projects, but another $1 billion would be added 
And there's separate carve outs for other programs too, as just reading through the bill, there's $1 billion for aviation biofuels being proposed in addition to a new aviation biofuels tax credit. And the corn ethanol and soy biodiesel lobbies are even trying to change some of this bill language to allow corn and soy-based fuels to qualify for the tax credit. This is the aviation biofuel tax credit, even though it's meant to benefit the next generation and non-food-based biofuels. Corn and soy-based fuels do more, more harm than good for the climate. So expanding subsidies for them would be a dead end for not only the climate, but also taxpayers. So in summary, Steve, the biofuels industry just can't stop asking for more government handouts, despite more than 40 years of taxpayer subsidies. It's a never-ending gravy train, if you will. Yeah, I mean, their subsidies are just middle-aged compared to the oil and gas industry's geriatric subsidies. So clearly, neither of them are necessary. And then we've given them cash. We've given them market preference. We've required a certain amount to be used. I mean, we've basically taken a belt and suspenders and another belt and maybe another set of suspenders approach to the biofuels industry to support them. And at the same time, it hasn't really led to this growth of next generation biofuels. That's right, Steve. Going back in time, because both you and I and Autumn have been working on these issues for a long time, we know that that was the goal of the 2005 energy bill when the renewable fuel standard was created and then when it was expanded in the 2007 energy bill. Congress during President Bush wanted to expand biofuels and have all these great non-food based biofuels created from perennial grasses and wood residues, et cetera. But that hasn't come to fruition over all of these years. And like you said, Steve, despite all of these subsidies. So that mandate is set to expire at the end of next year. And independent analysts have said that we're not going to meet any of the targets that Congress set that many years ago. And we're not going to have achieved any of the goals of helping the climate or moving toward those next generation of biofuels. Thanks, Sheila. You know, as I'm listening to this and I'm thinking about all this money that's going into this system, I mean, what do we need to do to stop the subsidies to change the gears here and actually protect taxpayers? So I'm just throwing it out to all of you. One of the things that I was thinking about a lot when Sheila was speaking again, going through the laundry list of subsidies that we've given to the biofuels industry and that are on the table here in budget reconciliation is also the missed opportunities with budget reconciliation to cut back on some of these subsidies. So we obviously are a group concerned with how this package will be paid for. We've put out many statements, laid out principles for budget reconciliation, and this is all on our budget reconciliation resource page. So folks can get that on our main page. And so pay-fors are a big thing. Eliminating subsidies, it's a great way to come up with money to pay for other priorities. And we had hoped to see the big oil and gas tax breaks on the chopping block as Ways and Means was moving its package through budget reconciliation. And those subsidies that I mentioned earlier, the intangible drilling costs, the IDCs as they're known, or the percentage deletion allowance, these were billions of dollars that we could get in revenue if we were to eliminate these and they were left off the chopping block. So clearly, again, this is something we can see that the industry is exerting dominance and coming out as victors. So they've won in every tax reform bill before. The 1980s, they won in the tax bill and 2017, big oil oil had a big windfall after that so-called tax reform bill. And again, it looks like they're on this trajectory to maintain their tax breaks, even when we are coming up with huge packages of tax cuts and ways to raise revenue and uh, looking at how 
other sectors are going to have to increase their taxes, but oil and gas is coming out on top. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that, Autumn. And they are kind of the cockroaches of tax policy that they seem to survive various efforts to reform them. But in this case, too, what's really striking to me is that one of the big efforts of this reconciliation package is to deal with climate change. And here's a case of where you can actually help deal with climate change by subtracting subsidies to greenhouse gas emitting oil and gas industry. And so I hope that Congress steps back from the brink and recognizes they need this revenue and this revenue can help them offset some spending on some other climate related things. We talk a lot about eliminating underlying subsidies that are doing more harm than good for the climate. And we've talked a lot about those today, oil and gas, biofuels, the list goes on and on. And unfortunately, even though Congress has had a goal of reducing climate risks and reducing those costs, the packages that we're seeing in front of us right now are actually doing the opposite. We're seeing a continuation for 10 years, for instance, for the biodiesel tax credit, which is not only expensive, it distorts markets and it's not good for the climate. So we need to see Congress shift in um, a different direction and actually get to the underlying problem here. Yeah, I mean, these these are clearly incentives for increased fossil fuel production and increased consequences when it comes to climate impacts. The fact that we're working at cross purpose here with these proposals for the intended goals is something that's so outrageous and something that we're really trying to bring to light. I mean, we're not, this isn't about picking winners and losers for us. This isn't about saying that oil and gas and the biofuels industry just need to go away, but it is about saying that there are unnecessary and wasteful subsidies propping up these industries that just aren't justified. We know that these climate costs are coming down on taxpayers, too. So it's like even like kind of lose, 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 you know, and that we're going to be bearing these costs going forward. So, Mia, after doing your research and digging into this, what is the most striking idea or thing that you found that you really want Budget Watchdog AF listeners to know? Have you not been listening, Steve? Like we mentioned, over the last decade, the oil and gas industry spent $1.9 billion in political spending. And what did they get in return? $93 billion in federal subsidies in terms of preferential tax treatment, as well as sweetheart terms in leasing system. That is just guaranteed windfall every year, year after year. It's really time to stop continuing to hand out to the oil and gas industry, which is well-equipped to stand on their own feet. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I was listening, Mia. So there you have it, Budget Watchdog AF listeners. Greed, naked political power, and the exploitation of American taxpayers. It's time we write a new ending to this story. Are you listening, Congress? And to you, thanks for listening to Budget Watchdog AF. Subscribe and share. Taxpayers for Common Sense has your back, America. We're reading the bills, monitoring the earmarks, and highlighting those wasteful programs that poorly spend our money and ship long-term risk to taxpayers. 